Yo, what's up? This is DJ Yella coming straight out of Compton. You listen to Fly Fidelity. Check it out. First, First I say, what, what we gonna, gonna do? do? Then you say, say, I don't know. What do you wanna do? What we gonna do? What you wanna do? You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Fly Fidelity, multi-platinum producer, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and a founding member of the world's most dangerous hip-hop group, NWA. The legendary DJ Yalla joins us for an exploration and glimpse into the making success and legacy of the group that came straight out of Compton. Enjoy the conversation. go all the way back because I want to move sort of to where you have come to with this new book in this space and time. Straight Out of Compton is the name of the new book, My Untold Story, as a way to contextualize the time and place. Can you walk me through your introduction to the Wrecking Crew as a collective of DJs in LA clubs, 1981, 82? Well, I guess it was probably 81 or yeah, 81. And I started DJing at the, yeah, even after dark. It was, the, it was the wrecking crew, but it was not the music wrecking crew yet. And we haven't yet invented, you know, trying to do music. So we were DJs in the club called the Eve After Dark. I was there first. I was there two, two to three years before Dre came around, maybe at least two, two years. So I started DJing first. And then, you know, I, I became like the, you know, I guess the hot DJ in L.A. and stuff. Right. So it wasn't too much competition back then because it wasn't, we were the only young adult club. So, and we happened to be every Friday and Saturday. So it was kind of easy to do because it wasn't like you get a party every now and then. So we were there every weekend. So it, it was pretty good. You mentioned there not being too much of a competitive space at that time. What about a few years into being with the Wrecking Crew? What kind of competitive space were you navigating as a DJ? And at which point do you start thinking about going from DJing clubs to making songs? Um, well, we, we personally really didn't have competition because we were the only one that had a solid place every week, which was the Eve After Dark, a club. Got you. So... Our co- competition wasn't really, wasn't really no competition, not really, because everybody else, Uncle Jam's Army or whoever the other places were just DJ crews. They didn't have a permanent place or a club or nothing like that. So they did dances maybe once a month or so. So we were there every week. So we we did that once I met Dre and all that, and we started becoming, you know, DJs together. And then one day we seen. Run DMC for the first time come to L.A. Mm. to do a show. And I remember me and Dre just looked at their show and, you know, it was a 10-minute show and and they only had Sucker MCs at the time. So that might have been around 83, sometime in 83. And we just looked at it like, that's all it takes to make a song? You know, and that was how we started, by looking at them. It was nothing but a drum beat and them rapping. That's all it was. A friend of mine asked me to say some MC rhyme So I said this rhyme I'm about to say The rhyme was there but then it went this way Took a test to become an MC And Orange Cliff became a major 
take it that and move back, catch a heart attack Because there's nothing in the world that run the level like a cold Chill at a party in the b-boy stand And rock on the mic and make the girls wanna dance Fly like a dove and cover them up above I'm rocking on the mic What was it like knowing Dre back then? And what was his reputation at this point in time? Um, I don't know if he had a reputation. Not really. Because he, you know, when I met him, you know, somebody wanted him to battle me when I met him. You know, and I didn't battle him. We never battled or anything. But, I mean, we were just like brothers. I was like the older brother. He was the younger brother. We just had two different mothers. But we was... We clicked, we bonded, like, instantly. And that was for the next, I don't know how many years, eight years, seven years, whatever it was. But we bonded and bonded for a long time. And it was a magic in that bond, wasn't it? For the longest time in the beginning, there's a bond, there's a magic bond we're talking about, which translates in the work we're going to be talking about later with NWA. What is it that sticks out most from that time and working together for what would have been your earliest recording sessions pre-NWA? Um, it, was, it, was, it was because we had to earn it. So we had, what I mean by that, we had to create everything we did. There wasn't no samplers and when people sampling stuff yet, not in them days. So we, you know, may hear a record or something and we just had to learn because nobody was a musician. I played the drums, but we, we couldn't play the keyboards or nothing. So we just learned and just, we learned everything from scratch, everything from scratch. So it was, it was different. But it was fun because we learned at the same time. That's what we was doing. Well, speaking of learning at the same time, you mentioned you being a drummer, of course, before joining Wrecking Crew and NWA. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that elevates your drum programming at this point with the Wrecking Crew? Um, you know, well, I had a little more rhythm than everybody because I, you know, I was a natural drummer. But on the drum machine, is is if you never played the drums and don't know how to play drums, it's either, you know, you can program it. Right. But the thing was, we just learned all the machines, you know, the drum machines and the keyboard all at the same time. So we just kind of like we grew up together. From DJing to that, we grew up. That's how we were so good and so tight and bonded. But we just learned everything on the fly. I mean, programming the drums, I don't know if it was easier for me. I wouldn't say that because the drum, you know, all you need is to hear the beat that you want and put it in the drum machine. And what could you tell me about Steve Yano at that time? Can you talk about his contribution during what would have been a foundational moment pre-NWA era that kind of revolutionized distribution and community and having a connection at that time? Um, uh, yeah, his, uh, record store was at the Rhodium Drive uh, swap meet, which is like an outdoor flea market. And he was the... I had made mixtapes before Dre came around. But when Dre came around, then we started doing mixes and started doing the K-Day mixes. Steve Yano wanted us to make mixes, mixtapes for before he could sell them. So I remember we made mixtapes. You know, he paid us to do it, but it just like it just it blew up. It it, mm. it got hot. It got real hot because you know mixes on tapes that was like ahead of its time. Nobody was doing it. That was you know kind of rare. So yeah, Steve Yano definitely he definitely was there in the mix with the mixtapes. Plus when we started doing NWA, the early songs like Boys in the Hood and stuff like that, he sold out of his his shop too so that's right steve yano he he definitely was a part of history too absolutely and how do you feel those mixtapes elevated your perspective of audiences and audiences relationship with music and what people wanted in la back then um wow uh it 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 opened the eyes and the ears you know for hip-hop you know this was like the early stages all it was was new york yeah. And there was only, you know, a few songs coming out of New York in the early, early days. 
So it opened up here. Well, I would say L.A., not the West Coast, just L.A. It opened up the market for, you know, mixing and scratching. And, you know, the DJ was we was behind on DJing. New York started at first. They started scratching first. Right. All that. So we came behind. So the mixtapes just opened up the ears to the people and got us, you know, kind of a little talk of the town. Because I had stopped doing the mixes and Dre kept doing the mixes. Me, to me, it just took up too much time. I, I, I'm like, ah, it's too long. But yeah, Dre kept doing them. So that's why it kept getting, you know, hotter and hotter, you know, the mixes by him and stuff. So yeah, it was, it was, it really was just ahead of its time. That's what it was. Ahead of his time. What's interesting is knowing how disciplined Dre remains today in terms of, you know, his consistency and the work he's doing to this day. You mentioned mm -hmm. going back to K-Day's Traffic Jam show. This is a time yeah. when radio is very good to you locally. Can you share any yeah. insights about you doing mixes for K-Day's Traffic Jam show? Yeah, that was, you know, that was another thing that was ahead of time, doing mixes for the radio, especially in L.A., now, in New York, they might have had mixed shows and stuff. I don't know. We didn't live in New York. But here, there was no mixing. Very little hip-hop on the stations back then. And K-Day was one of the first. They had a little mix show at 5 o'clock called The Traffic Jam. And me and Dre started doing the mixes first. And we used to drive every day to Hollywood, which is like two hours from where we was in traffic. Every day to drop off the mixes just before five o'clock so they could put them on because they we put them on reel to reel back then, and it was just it kept putting our name out there, it just mm. kept keeping us ahead of everybody for some reason. We were just like a step ahead, we didn't plan on being a step ahead, but it seems like the stuff we did was just a step ahead of everybody else. Well, Dre's already at this point, to my understanding. He's already done Boys in the Hood and 8-Ball with the rest of the group. Mm -hmm. He's already ahead. How does Supersonic mm -hmm. happen with J.J. Fad, which would have been one of the first times anybody had ever read High Power Productions on a record? Can you talk about mm -hmm. that period as a watershed moment and your memory starting High Powered Productions? Yeah, it was um, Dre did the Boys in the Hood and the 8-Ball little single i mean well 12 inch and then arabian prince had this group called jj fad they he, he made the song the song was made before we even heard it right and it was on dream team records but i don't know what happened how it happened they ended up on ruthless we ended up getting them so i remember we waited for them to bring the masters for the song but they never brought them so Dre said, okay, we're going to redo the song all over. Because the original Supersonic had five girls in it. This one had the three. So evidently, two of them, I don't know what happened. They weren't in the once we did the album. And people don't realize, yeah, that was the first time High Powered. I think it was the first time it, 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 it was put out like that. But J.J. Fan was our first gold single and gold album mm. for Rufus. Even before NWA and Easy, definitely. That was our first gold records. And a Grammy nomination from it. And it was just, I didn't like the song originally. I hated the song. But as you keep listening and listening, then it just grows on you. And it just became an instant hit back then. Supersonic. Supersonic. Rhymes are creating And everybody knows that JJ Fad's devastating We know you like us, girl So you better get sterile Cause we are the home chicks That are rocking your world Supersonic Supersonic What was it that stuck out about Easy at that time? Can you remember your first time meeting? Um, I met him right towards the end of the Wrecking Crew we had just did the song Turn Off the Light, which was our last song me and Dre did there. And he came right around that time. E, Dre already knew E from the neighborhood. 
So I met him. He was just, you know, a little short guy, had money, you know, had money. But he was, um, the good thing is he was from the streets. So he knew how to do business. You know, he didn't just do the business. He did it and held his ground. He had patience. Me and Dre back then didn't have patience because when we end up doing starting NWA or that started, Island Records wanted us at first. And me and Dre wanted to do it because we wasn't making money with the record crew. So we just wanted to, you know, to sign with Island and do and do the album. Or not even an album, maybe a single or something. But he held his ground because Island wouldn't put Ruthless across the label of the of the uh, record label on the label. So he held his ground until priority came. And priority was willing to put Rufus over the whole label and put priority in the small print. They didn't care. So I give it up to E for that. He held his ground. Me and Dre would have just been on, we would have went on Island. With Island on there, you know, it wouldn't have been Rufus. But he held his ground and priority came through. How do you think Island would have changed the entire picture and scenario and impacted this album? Um, we wouldn't be talking today. I don't think so. Wow. Cause Island, Island was a you know kind of big back then. I think they had quite a few groups, so they wouldn't. They didn't know how. They wouldn't know how to market us and none of that. Right. See, the priority. They only had one group, and it wasn't a real group. It was the California Raisins. But the song, the album or song, went platinum back then. So Priority was more hungry. They worked and promoted right and stuff like that. I don't think Island would have did that. I don't think so. I think we would not be talking 30 years later about this. When you were started to make songs with NWA, what would have been some of those touchstone influences that inspired you to push the bar as a crew musically? Um... Let me see. We came from the wrecking crew to change the sound. Dre did the boys in the hood and the eight ball. It just totally changed us. We just totally changed the sound. So it was like NWA was really meant to be like a super group. Me and Dre from the wrecking crew. Mm. Cube from the group CIA. Arabian Prince was a solo artist and then ran and E, you know, was new. So we were more like a super group. But it just all became one. Because if you think about this, if you look at Easy es first album, that looked like N.W.A. That was N.W.A. Yeah. So I don't know whose idea was it, but the idea was to make two groups instead of one. We could have just been the one group, but the two make more money. Give me a sense of the atmosphere and process of recording in the studio for Straight Outta Compton. And easy does it. What was a typical studio session like back then? Um, more me and Dre in the studio all day. Like in my book, I say when you walk in the studio, what do you see? You see me at the board, Dre down by the drum machine with the turntable and stuff. That was the look most of the time in the studio. Then Ren, E, and then Q, you know, would come when it's time really for them to write their songs. But we would all we would do songs in one day, like straight out of Compton. That was made in one day. Wow! All the songs was really made in, the, you know, the tracks get laid earlier, then they come, you know, and then bam, do the words and because a lot of the time the songs was made from titles. I think straight out of Compton title was made first before they actually wrote to it, because Ren and Cube wrote all that, even E's part. And stuff right so i mean it was it was just it wasn't kind of it wasn't like the movie where it's a bunch of people in the studio that wasn't how it was only when we needed guitar player or bass player or something then we had them in the studio to do that and that was it it wasn't a hangout it was work going on just like doing the jj fat album then the easy does it then our you know nwa app it just worked it was, you know, because we was DJs. So if you listen to the albums, 
there's there's commercials and stuff in between the songs. That's right. We would that's more like mixing to us. Instead of having a song fade out and the next one start, we had stuff in between. So it'd be a continuous album from beginning to the end. Name and the boys coming straight out of Compton. It's a brother that'll smother your mother and make your sister think I love her. Dangerous motherfucker raising hell. And if I ever get caught, I make bail. See, I don't give a fuck. That's the problem. I see a motherfucking cop, I don't dodge him. But I'm smart, lay low, free for a while. And when I see the punk pass, I smile. To me, it's kind of funny. The attitude showing nigga driving. But don't know where the fuck he going, just rolling. Looking for the one they call easy. But here's a flash. like mixing records you know that's why we use so much stuff in the breaks scratching all the stuff in the break it was like being djs we produced like djs back then that's why we learned to mix the records we learned everything about recording i mean we learned everything you know as much as we can we had to learn there was no youtube university to go to yeah to see how to do something different time different time what about yourself being a producer back then can you share any moments you would credit for being some of your earliest lessons as a producer in the studio making straight out of compton specifically what did you learn from dre um i didn't really i don't think i learned nothing from me because we learned at the same time dre just wanted it more than i wanted it see dre wanted to be where he is today. I never wanted to be like that. That's why I stopped doing music. So we kind of, we both are perfectionists. He may be a little more perfectionist than me, but you know, it's got to sound just right. Just right. Whatever we record or whatever piece we, you know, it's just the ears. The ears never lie. They're going to hear what, what you wanted to hear. Because it's all about the ears. There's a balance, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because just like we learned to mix the songs and all, it's it's the it's what you're hearing. It's the sound. That's how we EQ'd stuff, recording it. Then we EQ it again when we mix it down. You know, we had little tricks of the trade. Two, had three kick drums, two snare drums. You know, we just, we did a lot of stuff that we learned on the fly. What do you think that balance was between how much technology could add to a record versus when somebody inherently brought their skill set to a table as an artist? How would you describe that distinction? Ah, you know, that's hard to describe because we just started from DJs and then started doing music and bam, you know, we just, yeah. it's, it's, it's so, that's, that's a, kind of like a catch-22 question it's like uh, right i really don't know what it is we just did it but you know what it is we did what we wanted to do that's the key mm. we didn't do for people to like you know them to like it no we did it what we wanted to do that's why our lyrics was the way they was when we opened our doors at home that's what we rapped about is the ghetto and, and the for fortunate thing is ghettos is all around the world that's why people can relate to it. It ain't like we rapping about Disneyland. And only a few people that went to Disneyland know. Ghettos is everywhere. It's universal. All around the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you remember the first NWA record that Dre rapped on? Uh, it Compton in the House. No, no, no. He rapped on... Uh, well, Compton in the House came before Easy Does It album. He, him and, he rapped on... Um, we want easy, just in a little part at the beginning. 
And then Compton in the house, he definitely did. And then Not Ruthless Villain, one other song where him and Ren was rapping together. I just can't think of the name of the song, but like on the earlier single, like Straight Outta Compton, he was he didn't rap very much on that. Yeah. Express Yourself, um, the Grand Finale, no, that's on Doc's album. The um, Parental Discretion, he rapped on that. And then he rapped on Compton in the House. It wasn't very many songs he rapped on. But when we got to the second album, that's when he stepped up and became the third rapper. What are your recollections of making Express Yourself, which is famous for featuring a very early version of Dr. Dre? What was it like making that record from conception to execution? Uh, it was more like a happy song to me. Kind of happy, because there wasn't no cussing in it. You know, it was kind of kind of dance. Yeah, you could dance to it, because a lot of our stuff wasn't made for dancing. Yeah. But that one was kind of, you could dance to it a little bit. It was just... It just, it exposed him, you know, showed, you know, that he can rap. Okay. He can be a rapper. But he wasn't the main rapper in, you know, in, in, in the Straight Outta Compton album. So it was just, I don't know. It was just, he, he showed his skills for the first time. back on the controversy that came with NWA and being banned from TV what kind of connection do you see censorship having in common with cancel culture today um I mean well we were so ahead of ourselves I mean we were so ahead of ourselves and now it's it's more freely now they ain't as harsh like they was on us banning us and Mm. Didn't win no kind of awards. You know, we didn't get anything. But we was like the bad boys in rap. But, you know, it just, we might have opened up some doors, I think, for nowadays rap. I think we did. Because now, you know, it's different now. Yeah, I think we opened up the doors for nowadays. That's what I thought. Oh, without question, I feel the same way. What about those early NWA records that were clean? Those clean NWA records are some of the greatest clean versions in hip-hop history. What was the process for making clean singles? Because uh, we did. People don't really know. Straight Outta Compton, there was a clean whole album yeah. made. We did that to get into the uh, department stores like Kmart's and stuff like that. But now, Kmart's would now be known like 
Walmarts and stuff, them kind of stores. So we made, they had to make a clean version. And it's, the clean versions are not as fun because you have to change the words so much Then sometimes you change the meaning of the, uh, of the line you're trying to do because, you know, <laughs> we have so many cuss words or, you know, it just didn't, they, when I hear them now, I hear them every once in a while, it's like, uh, sound kind of corny. Gladly, we had the real versions go out instead of the clean version because they wasn't as hard. It was kind of like watered down to me. But you had to change so many words. you are still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast why not become a patron of fly fidelity at patreon.com slash fly fidelity becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including patron updates offers and discounts a monthly secret podcast early access and so much more Talk to me about the lineage of comedians as an extension of your influences in which I know that so many NWA songs were inspired by. Can you share any recollections of being informed by comedy and trailblazers like Dolomite for the first time? Um, well, that, well, Richard, prior to us, what we grew up off of. Yeah, that was Dolomite, but Richard Pryor was the first one cussing on records. And then we did it. And now... You know, it's, uh, everybody cuss on the record now, so we we opened up the floodgates on that. But it came from Richard Pryor and Dolomite. They was doing it first. And there was a rapper back then called Blowfly. He cussed on the record. So we didn't invent it, but we made it out there. Absolutely, absolutely. What about the skits? What what was a typical session like recording skits, which you used to character yourselves and your enemies and lean into this identity without being self-serious? Um, the skits now, the movie looked like that's how it was the skit day if, when we're doing the skits for the in-between the songs. We call them inserts or commercials or something, but that's what it looked like because we needed people women, girls' voices, got, you know, a bunch of people to work on it. And we just, like, just just thought of it and just did it. You know? <laughs> but that was what made us different from everybody. Nobody did that at first. Nobody did no kind of skits in between songs and stuff like that. And we, we had kind of, like, had fun at it. Do you have a favorite skit from that time? Uh, I think the second album, Don't Drink the Wine. That was a good one. Because those real singers, and you know, <laughs> that was a good one right there. <laughs> Let's talk more about Ruthless and, and this powerhouse it was becoming for artists outside of NWA. What was it like playing drums on a DOC's The Formula? And in summary, what was it about working with a DOC that changed everything about writing and recording back then? Um, well, I know in the early days around the Easy Does It, when we first Doc came around, because Dre met him, his style, people don't know this, but he learned Doc's lyrics better than Cube's lyrics. He just liked the style of Doc. Doc was so smooth, and so poetic. I mean, it was just like, the way he said it, it just, ah. Oh, he changed the way lyrics was wrote to me. I mean, because he was a great writer. Then when he became an, a rapper, he was finna to be the next LL or whoever the big artist, solo artist was. He was about to be that before his accident. 
That's exactly what he was about to be. And then because the doc was on um, parental discretion is advised on the straight out of Compton, and because he started off the uh, album rapping and he did it in one take. Doc can do stuff in one take. I mean, he was, he had great talent. I mean, great. He loved his words. Dre loved his words. He he just had a style all of his own. Was that a skill anybody else in the crew was able to do, record verses and songs with one take as much as he was? Oh, no. No, 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 no. No, he was, he's the only one I knew that could do one take. I mean, I mean, just one take, bam, perfect. I mean, you know, Dre being a perfectionist, you know, hearing every he, doc, you just knock it out like it's nothing. Crazy, crazy. How many takes did it take easy to do Boys in a Hood? Um, well, well, with any song, it takes them. You know, me and Dre take turns recording him. You know, we line a big old piece of tape up, white tape. We got a marker every time we stop. And take a you know cut the song. We just mark it on the tape. By the end of the song, uh, not not the song, end of the verse. You know it might be 30, 40, 50 takes. Because most of the time he had to do line by line. Most of the time, right? If he did two lines, I'd be surprised. Was that frustrating for you back then? No, it was just funny because <laughs> because he wasn't a rapper, right? You know he's not a natural rapper. He just, you know, it just, it was funny because we take turns, like, ah, it's his part now. Your turn to do this because <laughs> you have to punch him in every, you know, every line, every yeah. line. Sometimes we may make a mistake and punch him, you know, then we have to do it over. And, whoo, his lyrics was nightmare. Wow. Because people don't know this. Hit the sec, the last album, NWA, was supposed to be an easy E album. Really? It started out to be an easy E album. But we, he just couldn't, we couldn't get him in the studio or whatever it was. Then that turned into an NWA album. Because E's album came out before NWA. So he was due for an album. So we just end up, that one just changed into an NWA album. And then many different versions of the second album. No, that was it. If there was no extra songs, we didn't, make, we didn't, Back then, we didn't do demos and stuff. We did, everything was done in the studio. So there wasn't like, we recorded tracks over here. And over, nah, we didn't do that. Right. It was only, I say, after all well said and done, it was probably two or three tracks laid around, but it had no lyric, no vocals on it. So we didn't have those extra songs laying around. Everything was done right then. Now, when you look back on 100 Miles as an EP and as a continuum mm -hmm. of what you were making after the first album, how important was it for you to take a breather after recording the first album and going into 100 Miles as an EP? Um, well, well, the Michelle, Michelle A came up after the Straight Outta Compton, the Doc's album. So a couple of albums came, so it got a little space. And then Cube left right after the tour. You know, Cube left. So it, we had something to prove. Okay, Cube's left. People thought, okay, Cube's left, which was one-third of the vocals. So that's why Dre had to step up and fill them, fill them shoes. So people thought it, we couldn't, we wouldn't be nothing without it. You know, then, you know, we had to prove ourselves a little bit. There's a moment in history where, you know, things start to change and fracture for the group and there's some turmoil between certain artists, which, which you just mentioned. How much did the media add to the friction between NWA? Where, in your opinion, does what's accurate about your relationship with each other end and what's exaggerated begin? Um, well, nobody was ever mad at each other in the group. People think that. We never was. No arguments, no fights, no arguments, none of that stuff. The problem that broke the group up, even when Cube left, is the out, the middle of the group is the core. It's a round circle. It's just a group. Ain't nothing wrong with that part. It's the ones on the outer circle that was the problem. People 
helping other people, telling them whatever they're telling them. So that's what pulled Cube away. And then Dre eventually left. It wasn't the group itself mad at each other or anything like that. No, it was just the outsiders is the ones. So it was very up. much blown up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it was the outsiders that did it all. Yeah. That's who it was. It wasn't the group itself. No. It was the outsiders. When you say outsiders, are you talking about the big meat? See, I'm not trying to say no names, but... The group is the center circle. It's five members in there. That is not a problem in there. Right. It's the second circle around the outside. You know, people Got you. helping people, looking out, telling them what, whatever they're telling them. See, I'm keeping it clean. But it was outsiders that broke up the group, not the group itself. Got it. What was it like hearing those diss tracks and not taking any side amidst, you know, what's going on in terms of that side of history? Um, well, he knew I ain't gonna, I ain't got nothing to do with you dissing Dre. I ain't doing it because I'm good on both sides. So I had, I had no enemies, you know, and I just like, that's why I wasn't in the video. And, you know, I, that wasn't my thing. Even to this day, I DJ around the world. I don't play no diss songs. None of that. That never was my thing at all. So I'm just in the middle. You know, I'm friends with both sides, so I couldn't stop them from that. But, you know, I had nothing to do with it, no part of it, nothing. at all. Why would you have? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was friends, you know, with both sides. So. For the love of money. What about the different artists outside of NWA? Any artists shaped and born out of ruthless records as a powerhouse? How does For the Love of Money come about, which you ended up producing for Bone Thugs and Harmony's debut EP? And can you remember your first time hearing Bone Thugs? Yeah. I mean, me and E was doing a show in Cleveland. I remember we was backstage and I was in, we was in the dressing room and E left for a minute. And these five guys came up to me and was like singing and rapping. And I'm like, what is that? You know, I didn't tell them that. And then when they did the little song and, stuff, and I seen E come back, I said, hey, why don't y'all go talk to him over there? And then it's history after that. They end up coming to L.A. after they talked to him. And then, you know, they heard, I guess, for the love of money, because that was already recorded before. That's right. For a group called Yomo Market. So I guess E must have let them hear the track. And they liked it. And history. History now. (laughs) (laughs) Classic record. It's also one of the many times you work with Donovan the Dirt Biker. What can you tell me about your relationship with Donovan the Dirt Biker? Well, I mean, he was our, you know, he was the engineer, but he really was the owner of the studio. We did our own engineering, to tell you the truth. We learned all that. We just learned it. So, when we're in the studio, Donovan is just in in the, in the front somewhere. We record everything. We we call him when we need to patch something in. Okay, patch this keyboard in or whatever that. But after a while, we start patching in things ourselves. So Donovan would come in and and at the cha- you know change come change the tape or whatever he had to do. But we did all the recording. Once yeah, for, since the wrecking crew. It goes back to you being self-sufficient and learning, like you say, on your own terms and figuring out things as you're navigating as an artist and member of NWA, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. We just, that's what I said, we just learned it all. Step by step by step by step, you know, everything. So we got it, we mastered it. We got the craft, now we know. 
What's the story behind your first and only album, which was released on Street Life Records in 96? What was that experience like? Um, I didn't want to do it. I wasn't thinking about it because I wasn't a, a rapper. So, you know, somebody wanted me to do an album. I'm like, I'm not an artist. You know, I'm not an artist. I don't rap. But it ended up happening. And I just, I was making this, the album more about E than trying to be more about dancing and all that kind of stuff. I'm just making songs, not trying to make a hit. Yeah, I did that more for just making it, dedication, more than trying to make hits or trying to do That's why I didn't get Cube or Ren or nobody to be on it. I just was just doing it from the heart. That's all it was. Because I never wanted to do it. With the same token, it's very much a personal project for you and Ruthless Records. It's mm-hmm. got records with BG Knockout. What was that like working with BG Knockout? Um, well, yeah, because the thing is, some of them tracks, we had, well, we I did songs with them from E's last album. Oh, they was on them, the Drapsters and the BG Knockout. They was on songs I did for E's last album. Yeah, but that album. It was just in the studio. I didn't think nothing about the album. So I started doing my album. And then the courts that was representing Ruthless came to me to do E's last album. Because I had it in the studio, but I didn't think nothing about that album. You know, E was dead, so I'm like, I didn't think about that album. So they came to me to do that. I'm doing this all at the same time. And then Priority came to me to do the first NWA Greatest Hit. So I'm doing three albums at one time. Wow. So I'm just like, wow. So that's why, I'm, you know, I finished the E's album. You know, I had to finish some stuff. So that was a that was a crazy time for me. That many albums at once, same time in the studio. I'm just like, wow. Did you ever feel and burnt album, out? Um, Not burnt out. No, I wasn't burnt out. But after E's funeral... I was done with music, which was in that, you know, early 95. Yeah. At yeah. his funeral, I said, that's it. I'm not doing music. anymore." But then a year later, 96 is when they came for me to do my album. Then the Easy E album and the NWA Greatest Hits album. I didn't want to do music. anymore. I was, I was just, I don't know if I was burnt out on it. I was just done with music, period. Once he right. died, I'm like, uh, all right, I'm, I'm good. Things changed. And I went on to other things. I wasn't even thinking about music. So, there's a period after your solo album and you're not making music mm-hmm. anymore, like you said. How do you reflect on your work as an adult director with a distance? I, I do it. I, I, I went into the, the adult movies the same way like producing records. I did movies. I did four or five movies a month. To me, it was like, because I jumped in as a cameraman, taking stills, filming, editing, making the music, you know, doing everything, not being in the movies, movies, but like producing songs. But these would just happen to be videos. It's the same. I went about it the same way. How did the opportunity come about? Uh, it was a buddy of mine named Big Man. He brought, actually, he brought the idea to, to E first. He asked him, he said, man, let's do some more movies. And E did never answer him. So he brought the same question to me. I said, okay, yeah, let's do it. Because I thought of it as, I didn't get excited and say, oh, yeah, the girls. No, I thought of it as like making records. But dude, right. I thought of it. And I went out and bought all the cameras, editing, you know, all that. I jumped into it as business. And I did it for 15 years, 350 movies later. <laughs> wow. Did you write any of those films? Uh, my buddy Big Man did. I wasn't the writer, but I okay. everything I did. <laughs> From the cover to, I mean, everything. <laughs> We're in this time now where, where, you know, there's a passionate and needed culture of people giving mm-hmm. flowers before it's too late. Do you think you get enough credit for being one of the first in L.A. to elevate the visibility of female rap groups at the frequency you did with Ruthless Records? I don't know. I mean, 
That's what people talking down about flowers. Before. You know, I didn't really didn't know what they were talking about at first. Like flowers before. I'm like, what? But now I understand what they talk about. Eh, I don't know. You know, I, I'm just a regular guy. You know, I just did, or we just did whatever we did. And at the time we did it, we never thought it would be what it is today. That's what probably made it so unique. So we just did it for that moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether I get credit, I don't know. You know, I really don't care about all the credit. You know, I don't care about all that. <laughs> I, I say it to say this. For every uh-huh. song that people have knocked in the past about NWA and how misogynistic that song or album was, you know, there's an artist, a female artist, you've brought out and helped elevate their career, which is why I mention it. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we started a lot, whether we did it or not. But we started a lot. The whole culture of, you know, it was gangster rap in the beginning. Now it was hip hop and whatever they want to call it. Now, but we started a lot. I mean, ah, man, wow, <laughs> that's a heavy question. <laughs> Cause I said I don't never think about this stuff, but like wow, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff started off of me and Dre, which originally started this back in the Wrecking Crew. A lot of think about all that came from that. Fifty Cent, Snoop's, Eminem, Kendrick's group after group after you know through Cube, but you know so many. Oh, it's a whole, it, it's amazing. I mean, it is amazing what came from two little guys in the wrecking crew trying to make some songs. That's where it started. And it really started from me and him DJing. And then it go back further to me DJing. You know, I don't take credit. For, I don't take credit for that. But that's how it really started. That's how it is. And think about it. 30 years later. We still talking about this 30 years later. That's so rare in itself. Then not including to get into the Hall of Fame, you know, like, wow. It's just, it's amazing. I am amazed. Do you have a proudest memory? Oh, not really. I like the touring. It was fun. The Coachella, when we did it, the first time we've been together on stage in 25 years or something, that was different. I mean, I guess just the being in the studio back then, that was that was our world for a while. That was our world. Like Dre now, that's his, still his world. But back then, that was our world. And being on stage, performing on stage, we, we used to like performing on stage better than anything. That was our break right there. Now, just imagine what well, you can imagine. And now just imagine social media would have been around in them days. But look what happened 30 years later. Social media is around. And NWA did the same thing as it did 30 years ago. Incredible. All around, but all around the world at once. That is amazing. A new generation listened to it. A totally new generation. The millennials. I'm just like, wow. Insane. <laughs> What are your memories of being in the UK and doing a show in Brixton? Oh, I remember because I just did one before the pandemic dropped. I went back to Brixton, a DJ. And I was like, oh, we was here. Because the guy had the poster. He had the picture of that in his in his club. Wow. And it's like being in London, I, you know, because that is a part of London, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because we did two shows there. And it was just, but the record crew, we had went to London before that, the Fresh Fest in 84 or 85 or whatever it was, we did the Fresh Fest in London. So it's different because, you know, it's just outside the country, there are more hip hop people than they are here in the States. Even to this day, it's like that. Because I DJ around the world and all I play is the old school hip hop. They just, they're more like hip-hop heads than anybody to me. 
London. I mean, all across the Europe, all that stuff. It's great. I, I like overseas. Tuned into the soothing sounds of Fly Fidelity Podcast in partnership with Rapper's Delight, the brand new hip-hop parody car collection set, original art with featuring artists from Garbage Pal Kids and many, many more. You can own such classics as Cheesy E and Swim Shady. Protect your deck, baby. Any supporters of Fly Fidelity on Patreon get 30% off vouchers at rappersdelight.org. That's W-A-R-P-P-E-R-S. D-E-L-I-G-H-T dot org. You can support Fly Fidelity Podcast, unlock exclusive content on the Patreon, including a monthly secret podcast and more. Tell me about your book, Straight Outta Compton, My Untold Story. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment you wanted to recall your experiences as a member of NWA? What was the inspiration of why now? Um, it just came to me over the, I wrote it over the whole pandemic, like a year and a half when it was shut down and stuff. That's when I wrote the book. It came to me. God gave me the book. Cause I never, I never wanted to write the book. Never thought about it, but I've been taking notes. I don't know how long ago, but I was just taking notes of stuff that happened. Not the story, just like a line that, okay, me and Dre did this. And I had like 50 different lines of just ideas. Then during the pandemic, it just came to me and I just started from age four or five to 2020. And it just happened to be the Wrecking Crew, NWA, Cube leaving, E dying, the group breakup. You know, all this happened to be in my timeline of my life. And I didn't make it to try to make me sound like I created something or nothing like that i just told it like it is mm. i just this is the story this is what happened this is how i met Drake. this is how this that's all it is no lies it's just this is what happened whether i look good in the situation or look bad it didn't matter but this is what happened would you say that you approached this book in any way as a way to help somebody else navigate a similar perspective as yours did you write this to empower some people in part I mean, it was wrote for a word. That's for sure. Especially those in the music game, getting new and stuff. Tell them the mistakes I made. No lawyer, no paperwork, not knowing, you know, when we did it, think about this. When we did music, the first few albums, three albums on Ruthless, JJ Fans, Easy Does It, NWA. We did it without a contract because we were just doing the stuff. We was all friends. There was no paperwork, nothing. <laughs> so my book is to try to help people. You know, don't do You can't do that these days. People will rip you off and stuff like that. I'm not saying Rufus ripped us off or anything, but we just did it with no paperwork. That's just because we did it. You know, back then, it's more like a handshake than signing papers. Right. 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 That was more like real contracts. But, you know, we didn't know nothing about publishing. Producers, there's so many levels of pay from one song. So in the book, I'm trying to teach people stuff. Don't do the stuff I did. (laughs) DJ Yeller, I want to give thanks for joining us on this episode and allowing us so much time to dive into all of this insight and hip-hop history we've been talking about and shaping the best of what hip-hop is today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I mean, this this is what I do. <laughs> Maybe somebody will learn something. Maybe I get to somebody. Something. I don't know. <laughs>
give a fuck Chances are usually not good Cause I'm first with my hands on a hot hood I'm getting jacked by the you know who When in a black and white the capacity is two But not alone with three more brothers I mean street brothers not wearing my tights Because we're not stupid motherfuckers They have to take our heads for what we said in the past Point blank they can kiss my black ass I didn't stutter when I said fuck the police Cause it's hard for a nigga to get peace Now it's broken and can't be fixed Cause police and little black niggas don't mix So now I'm creeping through the fall See, I'm at a slight jaw So when I pack the gun and hold it in the air Cause MC Ren has a hundred miles of running I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly, Fidelity, updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people saw you with me where you were.